You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley titled, Didn't Even Know, which is from our You've Got Mail series. For more info, please visit creekside.org. If you would take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to finish it up today. And uh, we've been looking at the uh, seven churches of Revelation 1 through 3. There's some other things that the Lord's going to be speaking to us in the season ahead. Uh, But these, we've been reading the mail of these churches that were real churches with real people at real places in a real time. But now uh, we're going to be taking a break from it. Uh, It is my hope that depending on the seasons ahead uh, and where the Lord leads us, that I would like to come back to it at some point and finish out the book of Revelation because I think it's such a powerful uh, expression of who Jesus is and that we really do understand the fullness of his life as we've been seeing. And we'll see that again today. So Jesus is speaking to these seven churches, and, and he generally writes in a, in a system or a, a way that he writes to each one in the same way. Oftentimes, he'll start off with a commendation. I love what you're doing. These are the good things that's happening. And then he'll move to a correction, which basically is he wants to deal with something to help them realign to his purposes and his calling and who he is. And then he'll end with a promise. And he says, if you listen, if you trust me and follow me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to enter into your story and I'm going to begin to rewrite the narrative that you've already established. And we see these in most of the churches, uh, this system and the way Jesus communicates with them as he's communicating to his, uh, his beloved friend. The Apostle John, who's writing this out, and then he's going to send uh, these communications to the churches here that he's writing to. Uh, It's important because this formula really changes today for the church of Laodicea, the last one. He really has nothing good to say to them. He goes straight to the correction. And understand that one of the things that probably a lot of us know if you've been in church, there are no perfect churches. I don't care if it's a mega church. I don't care if it's a medium-sized church. I don't care if it's a small church. There's just no perfect churches because there's no perfect pastors. There's no perfect people. And so we all bring our stuff into the life of the church. And a lot of times uh, that can be kind of messy. And we're going to see that here, as we've seen in a couple of churches. It's going to be this way in Laodicea. Because we're, we're, we're just flawed people. We're broken because of our sinfulness. And that's what Jesus always wants to do. He wants to step into and bring his life and heal it. And even though he's really not happy with this church, we still get to see uh, this love and the grace of Jesus as he writes to this church, letting him know that their narrative and their story can change as they respond to him. So we're looking at the seventh church, Laodicea. Uh, it was an expansive city. It was a large, wealthy uh, city. Uh, it was built along a busy trade route. And you'll see this picture here. They had this ancient path that was known as Syria Street. It was connected Laodicea to Colossae. The book uh, of Colossians in your Bible is the, was written to the church at Colossae. 
And there's some other things that I want you to know about and be able to see. If we see the picture up there, this here is the picture. You see the street, and uh, this would have led from Laodicea to uh, Colossae. On this main street, there would have had a lot of shops. It probably would have been similar to like going to Vacaville and going to the outlets. I mean, they just had shops that were all over the place because it was a very wealthy city. It was a commercial city. It was a banking center for the region where they had a great bank there where people would come to it. Uh, they were also known for this black wool to make for clothing. They had a major medical center that people would come to in their city. And they were known because they had developed this eye salve for people that begin to have eye problems. And they would rub it on there and it would help with itching or scratchiness or other eye issues. Now, what's interesting is Jesus, in the end, he's going to take all of these cultural things and begin to build them into his teaching and his challenge to these people. It would be like this. I would imagine that, let's say Jesus came and he wrote a letter to the church at Martinez, Creekside, or any other church here. It's very possible that he might write something about the refinery and how the process of the refinery works because it's such a central part of the establishment of this city for decades. He may use the example of, you know, I want to refine you. I want to remove the impurities. I want to work in your life and deal with some things just like a refinery would deal with the petroleum or the oil that comes in. And that's what Jesus has done with most of these churches, and that's what he does here with this church. So Laodicea, they also had a centralized water system because they lived up on a plateau. It was hard to get water there. And the water that they did get was often tepid and unpleasant. It had like mineral deposits in it, and so it just wasn't good. It would literally make people throw up. So they had these two neighboring cities, Hierapolis, which was a little bit north, and, and it gushed with these hot thermal springs. And so they built these aqueducts to bring the water from that city that would be hot. And then nearby in the south was the city of Colossae that was known for their pure and their cold water. And they would bring that through these built aqueducts to be able to give them cold water. Now, the city was, was known for two large entertainment venues. You'll see the one here. They believe that it probably could have seat up to about 30,000 people. And uh, so it'd be a great-looking uh, arena. They also had another one that was smaller. Now, the reason I show you these is because these people were highly educated for the area, probably the most educated of any of the seven churches that we're looking at. They were uh, definitely the wealthiest, the most influential, and they lived in a lot of luxury, not only in the city, but they had large homes. Excavation has brought some of them up, and these people had some significant homes. I suppose if you looked at their city back then, it would kind of be like if you, you bring to Martinez. You have the headquarters of the Chase Bank, Kaiser Permanente, headquarter of Macy's, and then you bring in Chase Arena. Okay, that's kind of what this would be like. I mean, this was just a well-to-do city. And these people also, because of everything they had, the homes, the luxury, the entertainment possibilities, uh, they were kind of arrogant. They had a lot of hubris. As a matter of fact, their, their political system was known as a little bit tricky. It could have been maybe one of the first politically correct political systems known. 
Because in this city, it was difficult to defend the way that it was set up. So the best way for them to survive was to make compromises with their enemies around them. And it was in 60 AD that there was this massive earthquake that basically leveled Laodicea and a lot of the other cities around it. Uh, we had talked a couple of weeks ago uh, about the letter to uh, Sardis that, or Philadelphia, and that when, when they experienced this earthquake, Rome came in and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going uh, we're, we're to let you go. We're going to let your taxes slide for the next five years and use that money to rebuild. And they were probably very thankful, and that's what they did. Rome comes to this church in Laodicea after the earthquake, and they say, you know what? We want to help you rebuild. We want to help you get this together. They stood back and said, no, we'll do it our own. We'll take care of it ourselves. Now, which is really nice, but there's probably some arrogance and there's probably some hubris that comes with that, and they ended up rebuilding their own place. So that's kind of the city. That's kind of the, the way that uh, their city is set up. And this is important because Jesus speaks in and uses a lot of these examples for his teaching and his challenge to them. So it's kind of a flyby. But now let's read and say some of the, see some of the things that Jesus speaks specifically to this church. We'll pick it up at verse uh, 14. The letter to Laodicea. So to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... This is Jesus now speaking to the Apostle John that this will go to the churches. He says, the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the originator of God's creation says the following. He's establishing his personality, his character, who he is and what he's speaking from there. I know your works that are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Now, now, when we read that, most of us, a lot of us look at that and go, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, Jesus wants us, you know, just to be off the charts, hot and cold is bad. But, but it, he isn't really saying that. He says, I want you to be cold or hot. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Good morning. And now he's going to kind of talk about some of the issues. Why would he say that? Gracious, loving Jesus. Well, here's the problem. You know what? You say I am rich and I have become wealthy and need nothing. Comma. <laughs> but you don't know that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Thank you, Lord. So here's what I want to do. I want to counsel you. I want to advise you. Isn't it great that he doesn't say, I'm going to make you? So I'm going to advise you. I'm going to counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. And get white clothes. Buy white clothes so that you may be dressed. And your shameful nakedness not be exposed. And put ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. Be committed and repent. And listen, 
I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. The victor, the overcomer, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. And as he concluded for every church, he says, everyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So now he's writing to this church, talked about the city, but the churches, we see uh, in Laodicea, they were very close to the north, there was the church of Hierapolis, and to the south was Colossae. Paul instructed in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, he instructed the church of Colossae, I want you to make sure that you read your letter to the church of Laodicea. You can see the church, the, the, the letter that was written to the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians, was really a polemic on the deity of Jesus Christ. And the focus of it was to understand the Christology, the, the study of Jesus, who he was, because they were dealing with vestiges of, 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 of Judaism coming back into the church and going back to the law, as well as Gnosticism, which basically made Jesus less than he was as some kind of, kind of a ghost almost. And the Gnostics were kind of going around and saying, you know what, we've got this higher understanding of spirituality than you all listen to us. And really what it turned into was heresy. And so Paul writes to refute that. He says, by the way, I want you to write the church. I want you to take this to the church of Laodicea because he was concerned about the infusion and the influence of this heresy and doctrines coming to them. And it seems that they had a good start because he's encouraging them through the letter of Colossians. But it's interesting, isn't it, how things change over the years. This is about 30 years later from the letter that uh, was written to them uh, or read to them from the letter of, of Colossians from John. It seems that wealth, independence, personal security had really begun to weaken their commitment to Christ. And that will oftentimes happen when you get away from sound doctrine and an understanding of the importance of theology and especially some significant areas like who Jesus Christ is. So Jesus, the investigator of these churches who comes and sees them, he speaks to them and reveals to them what he sees. So he comes in the first verse of introduction is he really says, here's three titles. Here's who I am that really underscores of what I'm doing. He says, I am the amen. Uh, the word amen, the idea behind it is just simply, so be it. Well, whenever we say a prayer and we say amen, well, what are we saying? We're saying, and thank you, Lord, for doing this, and we ask you to do that. Amen. So be it. We're really agreeing in verbiage and making a declaration that what we just prayed and what we said, we want that to be done. We ask you to do that, Lord. <clears throat> and so Jesus comes, and this statement is, he says, I want you to know, I'm the so be it. He says, I'm the one. I am the final word. I am the final authority. And he says, I am the amen. Uh, it's 2 it's, uh, Corinthians chapter 1, I believe it's around verse 20, where he says, I am the amen of the promises of God. So be it. Whatever God has said, I'm the promise of that. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the so be it of that. And so he's reminding these people that this is who I am. I'm saying this because I'm reliable and I can make it come to pass. 
And this is serious. Heed what is being said. He says, I'm faithful witness, which is, I'm the faithful and true witness. What he's saying is, you know what? I'm a- what I'm saying is accurate. You can test it. You can trust it because I'm faithful. And then he says, I'm the beginning of creation. Again, he's showing us his supremacy and that he knows all as the creator of all. It's kind of like today. So many want to refute God as the creator of all. They want to bring in evolutionary teaching and thinking. They want to refute Jesus as the son of God. It's good that he's a, he's a wise man. He's a good teacher. He's all of these things that we've been talking about for these weeks. But let's not get carried away with the savior of the world, the God thing, the way, the truth, and life and the only way to God. Let's not get carried away with that. Well, that's part of the problem with some of these early churches that they were dealing with. They wanted to take aspects of Christianity and mix it with these other pagan religions. Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm coming to set the record straight. You've heard the letter of Colossae. Don't forget, I am God in the flesh. I am deity. I'm the creator of all. And because of that, I have the authority to be able to speak the things that I'm speaking. So we want to look, what what does Jesus find? Well, he only finds negative. He doesn't find anything good. But the language and the imagery that that he uses would be very familiar to these people because he talks to them about riches. He talks to them about eye medicine. He talks to them about clothing and lukewarm water. And he starts off, he says, I know your deeds. You're neither hot, you're not cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, because you've got this tepidness about you and you're not hot or cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. So some of your translations say spit, some say vomit. It's interesting because spit can be a very uh, disdaining word. I don't know if you ever, you know, those of you who are sports people and you watch sports, you watch an athlete when they spit. They usually do it because they're ticked off. Uh, Tiger Woods got in trouble because he used to spit on the greens. He'd miss a putt, he'd do something, and as he's walking off the green, it was kind of like it's the green's fault, so he'd spit on it until the PGA told him he couldn't do it anymore. And so if you use that word, well, maybe it's almost like this disdain that Jesus has. You're just, you're just lukewarm. The better word, though, and the stronger word is probably vomit, regurgitate, puke. It's something that's almost uncontrollable. Most of us are aware of. If you've ever had to do it, it just comes up. And what Jesus is really saying is, you know, you're just making me sick. Uh, does that bother you? I mean, Jesus is, I mean, he's just, he's going after it with these people. And I think he's confronting his arrogance and their hubris and this deep-rooted pride because he says, you say I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. But he says, you know something, you just don't know the reality, nor do you have my perspective on who you really are. You don't know the truth. And what he's probably saying to you, you know, you don't have a whole lot of self-awareness of what's really going on in your life. 
And then he says, you know, you don't know what's going on. You don't get it. And then he goes, you know, let me tell you what it is. He says, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Notice the juxtaposition between how they saw themselves and how Jesus saw them. And so when Jesus speaks to them, he says, well, let me give a little contrast to how you're comparing and seeing yourself. So Jesus, he does a death blow to their wealth, but he says, you're wretched. He says, you're wretched. Romans 7, 24, Paul says this, uses the same word when he said, wretched man that I am. And it just means a person that's overtaken by sin. And Jesus is saying, you're kind of overtaken by sin and you don't even know it. He says, you're pitiful. That word is used in, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, where it's someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Because see, if you don't believe and understand the power of the resurrection, it's really going to be hard to believe in the divinity and the deity of who Jesus is because the resurrection is ultimately what seals the deal of everything that was done on the cross. The forgiveness of sins, this freedom of new life, the power of a new life because it's really sealed. And without the resurrection, Jesus just becomes another teacher that's in the tomb. But he's God because he resurrected he says, you're poor and naked. Uh, for some, maybe nakedness isn't really that big a deal. I mean, you know, to each his own. Hey, man, I just want to be free. I mean, <laughs> whenever I travel, I go down to the big cities. I don't, just about every place I go, you know, there's somebody running around naked. <laughs> no, I mean, really, a lot of times they're homeless. But I mean, you go to San Francisco, I mean, you know they have, they have laws there that you could, you could go into restaurants naked. Yeah, you, 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 check it out. Now, I mean, don't check it out. I mean, don't, you, know, you guys are so bad. And pastor said you were wretched and pitiful. But I mean, there's laws that you have to adhere to to go naked like into a restaurant in San Francisco. That's what I said, check out. But see... See, like I say, a lot of people aren't going to have a big deal about the, uh, the, the naked and all that. But in that day, this would have been a slap in the face to these people. Because Jesus is saying that you are poor and you're naked. What did they just say? We are rich. We have need of nothing. Because see, a poor and naked person being shamed, it would, have been, it would have been a big shame to them. Because if they didn't have clothes to put on or enough clothes or the right clothes, it just meant that, you know what, they were destitute and they couldn't afford it. And so again, Jesus is kind of juxtaposing what they said against what he sees. And then he says, you're blind. Uh, this is a place that was known for its medical center. This was a place that was known that developed medicine for people's eyes, that people came from all over to be able to purchase and to buy. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, you know something? I don't care what you use. I don't care what you've developed. You are blind and you can't see. And you may sell it to everybody else. But you don't see yourselves as spiritually unclothed, totally blind, and spiritually bankrupt. And he's challenging them to the core because he says, you're lukewarm. I mean, you're tepid. Uh, Dr. James Stewart, who is a professor of theology at Edinburgh University, said, well, the greatest threat to Christianity isn't Atheism, communism, humanism, materialism, the greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to make it to heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith, 
without ever becoming involved in the most significant work that God is doing on the planet Earth, which is in and through his church. Man, that's so true. I mean, how many just come to church and just kind of want to do a little check? I did it. I got through it. It's kind of convenient. Sometimes it's kind of comfortable. And we just kind of go through the motions because, well, that's what a good person does. How many love hot coffee? I mean, you get up in the morning and you go, I mean, you just can't function without your first cup of really hot java. Anybody here like that? Okay. Would anybody like a cup of hot coffee? You got it? Anybody, anybody, anybody want a cup of hot coffee? Did you raise your hand? Did, did you raise your hand? I, I can't hear you, but that's all right. Here, here's a cup. This is from my favorite place, McDonald's. I do not do the other places because this is really good coffee and, and it's really inexpensive. Everybody loves hot, don't they? Now, here's another, who loves like uh, cold, cold iced coffee? Wow, it's just a couple, three. Oh, yeah, and I want one. How do you know it's not going to be hot? No. Um, how many like, like the, raise your hand, you like the cold coffee? Okay, how many would like one? Can she have it? Okay. Oh, wow. That, I won't say anything about that. Watch your mom. What do you say? Thank you. You're welcome, girl. See, what do we do? We, we all love hot. We all love cold. It's the in-between. See, Jesus is writing this church, and the traditional view of how we see this has been that the Laodiceans were being criticized for their lack of zeal. They were lukewarm. So Jesus wanted them. He says, I either want you to get hot or I want you to get cold. And we look at these two extremes. And if we really understand them, I think we can see basically that both of them are probably positive. But unfortunately, most have seen the cold as negative. The idea is apparently being something like, you know what, Jesus is writing to these readers and, he, readers and he says, he didn't want you zealous, man, I want you on fire. I want you to, you know, woo, go for it. Or I want you just to get cold, cold, cold and just get completely as far away from me as you can. Have you ever thought of it that, that way? Like get right or get left. None of this in between stuff. Have you ever seen Jesus like that? Is that how you've kind of interpreted this? Well, here, imagine Jesus walking up to somebody and said, dude, sorry. <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I'm not really happy with you, Jay, so would you just get as far away from me and just prove yourself to be cold as you can? Now, do you think Jesus would do that? I don't think so. 
scholars believe that now Jesus is coming to this story, and as he's been doing, he takes this metaphor that's been drawn not only from the city, but from their supply of water to the city, which was lukewarm, oftentimes had minerals in it, and just wasn't good. And he says, in contrast to the hot springs at the nearby Hierapolis or the cold and pure waters of Colossae that would come in through their aqueduct system that carried water from the hot mineral springs in the cold areas. Which, you know what would have happened by the time they would have traveled from these two places? You know what they would have happened? It probably would have become, well, tepid and lukewarm again entering the city. The imagery here of these Laodicean aqueducts suggests that hot is good and cold really isn't bad either. Because Jesus says, I want you to be one of the other. Because both can be useful. But it's when it becomes tepid and when it becomes lukewarm, it becomes kind of emetic, which basically means it just makes me want to puke. And so I want us to see that I don't think, I think Jesus is just doing a contrast in what was taking place in the city because people needed both the cold and the hot. And Jesus worked, would work with both. But it's that lukewarm one that just says, you know what, I just kind of get a medic over it. What were some of the issues that they faced? Well, they had a faith where their desire for more comfort diminished their passion for Jesus. They had a desire for more. And then they had a desire for more comfort that diminished their passion for Jesus. I I think it's important because I've had a tendency to do this in my life. Where you see certain people and you go, you see certain preachers, you see certain people. Oh man, they're really passionate about Jesus. They're loud, they're obnoxious. They always talk to talk. And, and, and what I think is important, you've got to be careful because that isn't necessarily passion for Jesus that is instilled from within. Sometimes we're just passionate people. Some of the most passionate people that I've known over my decades at Creekside, nobody would say, wow, they're passionate. Passion is something that comes from within. And it's not always loud. It's not always visible in the short term. Because a lot of people that that we think are passionate, I could give you great preachers, man, they could scream and yell and spit. And they're not around anymore. Because their passion wasn't sustainable. And people are the same way. It's kind of like a 4th of July. You go up and you blow up and boom, you're gone. So when I talk about passion, I want you to understand the key that passion, you want to be sustainable. Because there's some people that always want something more, something more, something more, something more. I want a greater experience. I want a bigger experience. And this church, you know what? Because they were well off, they always had within kind of almost their deep. I want something more. And sometimes we get into this thing where I want this feeling. I want this experience. 
I want something more. Now there's a healthy something more. When you're just pursuing day by day in Jesus. But I've seen people come through and they always want something more. And they go find it and they get it. And then it's, I got to find something more. Okay, it's not here. It's not there. I got to find something more. Do you remember what caused Eve to be seduced in the garden? It wasn't that the serpent, it wasn't that the enemy came to her and said, here, I want you to try this big no-no. It's going to be really bad for you. (laughs) No, no, this is how Eve was seduced. You want to be more like God? You want to have his wisdom? Go here. And it's so easy for people to lose our passion for Jesus because we always look for something more. And if we don't feel it or get it or experience it, then we think, oh, where's God in all this? Isn't that what happens in a marriage? Married for a while, and then pretty soon it's, I want something more. I got to have something bigger. I got to have something better. I got to have something juicier. I got to have, I just, it's not, it's just not doing it. And that's why Jesus oftentimes juxtaposes marriage with relationship with him. Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and, and this is just, it's one of my favorite scriptures because he says these people, they, they were complaining about Paul and his ministry and, and the church there because remember, this is like one of the most spirit-filled, charismatic, Pentecostal, gift-endowed churches and they just wanted more. And, G- and Paul comes back to them and he says, I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve, that your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is found in Jesus. Focus on Jesus in you. Don't focus on all of these other things that, that you think will get Jesus for you. You focus on the simplicity of Jesus in you. How do you develop a lukewarm mix Well, it's you put hot and you put cold together. Have you ever noticed that most of us don't like the extreme temperatures? I don't want any temperature under 55. I just, I don't. You know, if I asked you both, you know, and some of you say, oh, I don't want any temperature over 55, you know? I want it cool. I don't want it hot. Why do we do that? One word, we want to be comfortable. It's kind of the same with faith. All of, a lot of people just want to be comfortable. You know what I mean? Well, we don't want to take the Bible too seriously. We don't want to take the Bible too seriously because that means we have to care for others. That probably means we're going to have to care for people we don't want to care for. That means we're going to have to like politicians that we would rather dislike. That means we're going to be uncomfortable because we're probably going to have to serve. We're probably going to have to pray. We're going to have to give. And I mean, I have to be in a small group. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. And I think we all want comfort. And that's what began to happen for the church at Revel. I don't need anything more. I got this covered, Lord. I just want to kind of go and do what I'm doing. And then I wonder if something didn't happen that, div- that d- diminished their level of commitment. 
See, passion can be killed by our comfort and our desire for more and more. Commitment can also be killed by complacency. Have you ever noticed when you get, your, your commitment begins to wane when you become complacent towards something? It's so easy for churches to get complacent and just simply want convenience. You know, man, we've kind of been around the mountain a few times. Let's just kick back. Let's enjoy. Same thing can happen with our doctrine and our beliefs. You listen to the conventional wisdom of culture for so long. Uh, You know, I don't know if I want to ride that horse. I don't know if I really want to go out there and believe this. I think Jesus is, well, a little different than what he was 2,000 years ago. People begin to start struggling with believing the Bible is God's word and that we would take it literally. I have people, I just had somebody come to me recently. Uh, Two weeks ago, they sent me an email. And this is a person that I have had significant relationship with through the years. I mean, some deep areas of relationship, family stuff and everything. And um, they wrote me and said, you know, I just wanted you to know that when we left, it wasn't because of this reason totally, but it was some other things that was working within me. And one of the statements, and I, you know, I, I care about this person, so I'm not bagging them or anything, but it breaks my heart as a pastor because they said, here's one of the issues I have is that I have family and I got friends that don't know Jesus in terms of the way, the truth, and the life. They know about them. And they said, you know what? It really bothers me because I can't imagine them going to hell because Jesus would be so exclusive. See, we allow things in our life to begin to shape our theology. And when that happens, it begins to diminish our commitment. Because see, as long as you begin to say, well, I can't believe this, therefore, I'm kind of done with it. I got family members too that I'm concerned about. But but I'm not going to let them determine or cause me to doubt the theology that I've spent my life believing, not just because I'm a preacher, but because I entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, never ever thinking or wanting to be this. But there are things that happen in our life that will begin to diminish our level of commitment. And I just want to reaffirm to everybody here, we believe that this is God's word. We will stand on the veracity of God's word. We'll teach it, we'll live it, and we'll allow it to shape our lives. Now, maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet and you're still on this journey. That's fine. But those of us who call on the name of Christ, I want to challenge you. That's what this church believes and that's what we're going to believe. That's where we're going to stand because it's the only solid and substantial thing. Jesus says, I am the so be it, amen. But somewhere they lost their commitment to their belief in who Jesus was and it began to affect their whole life. They lost their values. Notice the verse that says, you say I am rich. Jesus was saying, this is what you're saying. I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, I don't need a thing. But Jesus says, well, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
you say is what they thought about themselves. You are, that's what their values would have been. But Jesus says, here's your real values. You are, and what you are is ultimately what your values say that you are. You can say you value this and this, but if you don't do it and live it, it's not a value, it's just a statement. And Jesus says, you know, somewhere you've lost all sense of value. Let me, let me, let me realign your values for you. And see, what Jesus is saying to these people is really difficult because what he's really saying is you're hypocrites. Your words and your life don't line up. You thought you're rich and self-sufficient. That's your valuation. But my valuation is you're not even close. And worse, you're not close to me. They lost their humility. Again, if you notice that same scripture, there's I am rich, I have, I don't need. Notice the I, the I, the I. They become self-sufficient. They become prideful. We really don't need you, Jesus. We're doing fine. It's so easy to get there. Think about our nation. We don't need God. We don't need the Almighty. We don't need to pray in our schools. And then we kind of wonder why they're being diminished. There's a lot of things in our culture, our society, our city that, you know, there's never any sense of spiritual life being brought into some of the things that take place. And then we kind of wonder why we're, why we're diminished. See, I want to make sure that we never forget our need for Jesus. One of the, we're going to take a week leading up to Easter, and we're going to take seven days. We're just going to pray, and we're going to fast. We're going to, pray, we're going to fast over different things, and I'm going to give you some kind of directions and ways to pray. But as we go into Easter, I want us to never forget we need him. I never want us to forget that our city needs him. And I never want us, because our church is in one of those places where we could begin to just go, well, we really don't need Jesus. We can do whatever. And I want to bring us back to make sure that we're saying, Jesus, we need you, and our city needs you. And then they lost their Lord. You'll notice the famous verse in here that probably if you ever grew up in church, it says, ah, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. I was invited over to some people's house. You know, when, when, when Trina and I went over there, we knocked on the door. But you never knock from the inside, do you? You know, like, here I am, knock, knock, knock. No, you always are knocking on the outside because you want entrance in. And Jesus is saying, guess what? You've locked me out, you've pushed me out of your church, and I can't get in unless you invite me. See, when this happens to us in relationships, what do we usually do? We're just kind of one and done. We move on and we're good. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. Because he's a pursuing God. He's a loving God with incredible grace. And he just stands there and he says, you know what? I want to get back into your church. 
I want to get back into your life. Because you understand, it's really not the, the church that's the problem. It's always the people. It's the leaders. It's the people. It's all of us. Because we're the church. And Jesus says, I just, I want to get back into the lives of people. And notice what he says. He counsels him and says, I want to counsel you. I want to suggest, would you buy from me? Buy from me. Because we have this tendency to buy from everything else. And the currency that we want to use and the currency and the things that we want to buy just aren't really have eternal quality. I remember when I was a little boy, I can't remember. I just, I, I, I can almost be there, but it's such a vivid thing. Kind of embarrassing for a little kid. But, I, but we were downtown Portland and my dad kind of, he said, he was kind of a, he'd just go off and I'd go somewhere else. And I walked into this little store and I had this big peso in my pocket. Don't know where I got it from, but I had this big peso in my pocket. I walk in there and I find the biggest candy bar that I can find because I figure I got a big coin, <laughs> big candy bar. So I went up and I flopped it down on the, uh, on, the, on the counter there. And the guy looks at it and looks at me and he goes to the back and he comes back out and he goes, I'm sorry, uh, this isn't uh, enough money to buy this. And so I kind of, I remember being a little bit embarrassed. I just grabbed my coin, put it back in my pocket. See, I thought I was pretty rich with this big coin. But it really had little to no value there. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people. Man, you're, you're buying all the wrong things. You think you're rich, but you don't got the right currency. He says, you need to get it from me. And he says, what I want you to do is I want you to buy gold that's refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And this was a statement that Jesus or that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55.1 when he's calling his people back to him back in that day. He said, it's not that you look or you can act rich, but I want you to be rich in my kingdom economy. Now, in the Bible days, a smelter, they would take gold in from the mines and they would heat it up by f uh, intense fire until it liquefied. And then after stirring it up, the impurities would begin to be burned out and the rest of them come to the surface and the smelter would just scrape them off the, the, the top. And then all of a sudden there's this beautiful cauldron of, of gold as it cooled down, it would get smooth, and the smelter would just simply, he would know that the, that the gold was pure when he looked at it, and he could see the reflection of his image. Do you understand Jesus is a pretty good smelter? And a lot of times he'll use fire in our lives to begin to remove the dross, to begin to remove the junk and the crud. And that's what he's saying here. He says, I want you to get your gold for me because ultimately I want you to be able to look into it and I want you to be able to see and I want the reflection of your face to really be the image of mine that that's what's reflected to the people around you. Why does a lady wear a white dress to a wedding? Because it represents her purity. It represents her, her just sense of wanting to give herself to her husband. And that's what Jesus is saying. 
I want you to buy white clothes from me. I want you to wear the white clothes. Because as you go through the book of Revelation, you'll see that it talks about in a number of places that Jesus says, I'm going to put a white garment on you. I'm going to put a white garment on you. Isaiah says to the people, he says, God wants to cover you over with robes of righteousness. And Jesus is using all of these to say that when I put that white garment on you, I want you to put that, I don't want you to wear your black wool fashionista great clothes that you sell and everybody wants. Put those behind you and, and I want you to allow me to put the robe of righteousness on you. What's righteousness? It's simply right standing before God and before man. And he says, if you don't allow me to do that, if you want to stand in your own nakedness, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stand before me one day and you're going to be naked and you're going to say, well, man, I went to Creekside. Whoa, man, I gave some money. And no, no, no. Here's the deal. You only become righteous when you call on Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. Without his robes of righteousness, we'll stand naked before him because it's never what we do, loved ones. It's what he has done. Here's our responsibility. The one thing that we start and we do is we invite Jesus in and we make a commitment to follow him. Where else do you find forgiveness, freedom from your past, from guilt, hope for tomorrow? You find it in and through a relationship with Jesus when he covers us over with his robes of righteousness. And then he says, I'm going to put, I want, and I want you to put solve on your eyes so that you can see. See, everyone needs to get beyond their blindness and see Jesus. For some, of them, for some of us here, maybe it's your first time. You've never made a commitment to Jesus, and you've been spiritually blind. Paul says that there's this work of the enemy that covers your eyes, and you can't see the reality. And then one day, there's something in your heart that says, I believe or I want to believe, and you make that step. Maybe today would be that for some of you. But some of us here, maybe we got a spiritual blindness like the Laodiceans. And we're really not seeing Jesus anymore. We're seeing activity. We're seeing church, but we're kind of missing Jesus. And he says, here's what I want to provide for you. I want you to put this, I want you to put this spiritual solve on your eyes, and I want you to see me. And I want you to see my love for you again. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Remember as parents when you said, remember when your parents said, I only do this because of my love for you? And when you were a kid, you thought, how about a little less discipline and a little less love? I think we could still make it. No thanks. But Jesus says, be earnest and repent. Turn around. Change your thinking. Get serious about this. And come to me and come to my direction. And you hear his challenge. You'll see this famous picture up here of Jesus. Warner Salmon wrote this. When I, was, uh, when I went to church as a little kid, Oregon City Foursquare Church, there's two pictures that I vividly remember. It's this one and another one of Jesus where he has that kind of same look, and they were done by Walter, uh, by Warner Salmon. 
you see the light around him because he's the light of the world. And he's standing at this door and he knocks and he says, if anyone, not, not you, not you, but anyone, any of us, he says, if anyone hears my voice and then opens the door, I'm going to come and I'm going to eat with that person and they will eat with me. This is an evening setting a word when he says dine or eat because it's when they had this meal where they would literally just kind of spread out and they would take a lot of time to have this meal and it was about relationship it was about intimacy it was about getting to know one another and here's what you this is where this is where you see the love and the grace of Jesus coming to us and to everybody he's on the outside this great light but he's knocking to come in to his church to your life. If you look close, you'll see there's no doorknob in Solomon's picture. Why is that? Well, Jesus is a gentleman. He's not going to force his way in. And he'll always wait for an open door. He'll always wait for you to invite him in, for you to open the door. See, somebody, well, you know, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a Christian. I go to church. So? So did the Laodiceans. Well, you know, man, I'm a Christian because I'm just a good person. Meaning? What's a good person? You know, I'm probably a Christian just because, well, I believe in God. Okay. So do the demons. See, it's not where you are, but it's what happens in your heart, Jesus is saying. And are you going to invite him in? And I'm not talking, hear me, loved ones, this isn't really about salvation. That's part of it, but it's really about those where we begin to crowd and push Jesus out. I'm good, I'm rich, I'm well off, I have no need. And then Jesus goes, It's clear that he's on the outside and you and I, we have to choose to continually let him in. And all of this is important because your eternal rewards are based on this decision. He says to the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes, that means the one who overcomes, who gets through, who repents, who takes this life with Jesus seriously. He says, I'm going to have you sit down with me on the throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. It's just a precious promise. The church, any church, any person that opens their heart to me, to Jesus, he says, I'm going to open heaven to you. And you will love this for eternity. What a powerful, powerful promise. What's your personal response? Jesus closes this and he says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. You know what he's really saying? I mean, part of what he says, get a life. Take your life, your one life, and make it count. Hear what I'm saying and get back to my purposes and everything that I have for us. So here's the next steps. 
I'm convinced everybody in this room probably has a next step. Some of us may need to move out of our comfort zone, our convenience, and make a decision to receive and to follow Jesus. But you got to invite him in. It doesn't just happen. Maybe for others of us, you've been coming to church and you've been walking with Jesus for years, but you've never taken the step to enter the tank of baptism. That wasn't a casual suggestion that Jesus gave. Here's what he said. Be baptized. And maybe for some of you, it's, it's your next step. You wonder why maybe you get stalled a little bit, but maybe your next step is to enter the tank of baptism and make a public confession to Jesus, to the devil, to your friends and family here. I'm committed. We're going to crowd you a little bit on May 17th. We're not going to have church. Oh, we're going to meet here, but then we're going to go out into our community. We've been talking about it. We're making steps toward it. But on May 17th, we're putting together a plan now to be able to go out and serve and minister and help and love our community. So that it isn't just about them coming here, but that we go out to them. We come to Easter five weeks away. For so many, they're far from Jesus. And there's people that he's knocking at their door. And maybe, just maybe, all they would need would be a simple invitation from you to say, hey, just join me, sit at my table. And then for some of us, maybe we've just kind of drifted. And as the worship team comes, I want to just sing a couple of songs and I want us to share in communion together because what does Jesus say? He says, you know what? If you just invite me in, you just open the door, guess what? I want to dine with you. What do people do when they want to get to know you? Hey, come on over for dinner or let's go out to dinner. What did Jesus do? For after his resurrection, if you look at him in almost every instance of his post-resurrection appearance, he's eating with people. He's reminding them of the scars. He's reminding them of who he is, that I am God. And you can trust me. See, I'm alive. 